State University poll, 30% of people who profess to be Christians don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They just don't believe in it. The wonder of the resurrection that we celebrate today um, is much more than just there's something after death. The wonder of the resurrection is, is first that it <clears throat> confirms the reality of the gospel. Everything that we preach, it confirms it as true and something that you can rest in. But secondly, <clears throat> and thankfully, that the resurrection is given evidence or proof that, that, that God, you know, Paul wants to deal with the elephant in the room. Is it really true? Well, he speaks to that issue in our passage. And then thirdly, he shows us that, that the resurrection actually speaks to a new age that he has begun. That, that, that the hope that we have is not simply for that day that you move from death to life, but, but there's hope today for change, that the Spirit of God working in this now new age that has been inaugurated by Christ promises us change. So th there's much here in these verses. And I just want to look at them as like three steps into a deeper understanding of the resurrection. And, and so the first step you're going to see in the first four verses is that the resurrection confirms. It's the anchor, if you will, to the gospel. Now notice what Paul's doing in this. He's speaking about the gospel that he preached to them, that they have taken their stand in, that they're holding fast to. This gospel, of course, is of first importance. He says that. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is a first level truth, this gospel that he's speaking about. A lot of things are taught in the scriptures. I mean, the nature of the church, the nature of man, the nature of end times, the, the nature of many things. But, but this is a first level truth. Paul's not making it up. He's not adding to it. He's not adjusting. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. He's telling us about the divine origin of the nature of the gospel. He's not adjusting it to fit the times. He's not having to put his own spin on it. He's passing on what he received from Jesus Christ. It's immensely important. And you see him give us this short summary form, if you will. In fact, most scholars would say this is probably one of the first um, statements of the Christian faith, that Christ has died, that Christ was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, all according to the scriptures. Let me just look at that real quickly with you, uh, that Christ was died. Now, you know, Christ is a Greek word. The equivalent in Hebrew is Messiah. So Paul's saying the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God promised to send and deliver, that he has come and he's died. Now, that should be startling enough for us, that God's own representative, his son, the Savior, has died. But what's even furtherly unique about this is that he died for our sins, for our sins. <clears throat> presupposes a number of things. To say that the Christ died for our sins, it presupposes that God is creator and that man and women, we're responsible to him that he has created us for himself, but also presupposes that we have sinned against God, that we've rebelled against God, that we need this divine rescue and redemption and reconciliation because of our sins. Now, when I say sins, I, I want to be clear on this. I, I am speaking about the actions that we take, right? The lust, the anger, the bitterness, the rivalry, 
the lying, the slander, the murder, the adultery. I, I am speaking about those actions that he has died for. But I'm also speaking about the attitudes that give birth to those things, the passions, the idolatries that we have, the loves that drive us. You know, the, it, it, that's, the, that's the incubator of our actions, right? We think about these things first, and then we do them. Jesus kind of said the same thing when he said, you've heard it say to not commit adultery. I say to you, any man who lusts in his heart has broken the law. In other words, it starts in the attitudes of the heart. And Jesus has died for both attitudes and actions. In other words, when it says he died, it means that they were put upon him, as it were. That he bore them. Uh, the weight that we feel in guilt and shame, he also bore. And, and the wrath of God that was justly applied was borne by him. The alienation that you and I feel from God when we sin, he, he felt that. And he even died for our sins. It, it, it's a beautiful ending to his birth, is it not? In Matthew one twenty one, the angel told Joseph, said, you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Christ died for our sins. He came to save us from our sins by dying for them. But not just has Christ died for our sins, he was buried. This isn't a gloss. This isn't just kind of some addendum that they're adding to fill out the sentence. He was actually buried, which is teaching us he actually died. He, he didn't somehow lose consciousness and need resuscitation. No, he died. His physical existence ended. He needed new life. He needed to be resurrected. He actually died for us. He's gone through the veil first for us. Not just has he died for our sins and he'd been buried, but he was raised from the dead. Now, now notice that for a second. On the third day, by the way, anybody that wants to make the resurrection kind of a metaphor, when you speak in metaphors, you don't give temporal modifiers. In other words, he wasn't raised on the second day or the fourth day. He was raised on the third day. It, it, it's a historical bodily resurrection. He was taken up. And you notice that it's in the passive tense. That God raised him through the agency of the Spirit, making our salvation a triune event. Now, I want to remind you, because we didn't live in this time, this would have been hard to believe. <clears throat> you think it's hard to believe now? It was very hard to believe then. They, they didn't think bodily resurrection. That wasn't even in their worldview. You probably know more about it than they would have. Uh, in, in the thought of the time, death was a release from the body. You don't want to take the body with you. You want to break away from the body. Death was seen as a release. Finally, I'm free from the infirmities and the limitations of a body. So nobody would have expected, nobody would have desired a bodily resurrection. And yet Paul says, no, he was raised in a body. On the third day, he was raised. This is incredibly mind-bending that out of the ground would come one. And, and the tense of the verb indicates that he stays raised. So he didn't, it wasn't like Lazarus, like he was raised and then he died again. He was raised and he stayed raised. He is now raised. He is now reigning. That's what Paul's saying. So the gospel, if you're a Christian here, the gospel that you hold to, that you cling to, that you believe saves you, it's all of these things. We don't have the option 
We don't have the option of saying, well, I like the death and I like the burial. I can't get over the resurrection. We don't get to pick and choose. It's all the gospel. You know, Augustine, the great church father, he was a, a bishop, the church in North Africa back in the early 5th century, and he wrote these words. He said this. He said, if you believe what you like about the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. It, it's one entity. He has died, he's been buried, and he is now raised and reigning over all things. Paul wrote this letter to the church. He's not at this point trying to convince the non-Christian about the reality of the gospel. He's trying to convince the church about the reality of the gospel. To To deny the resurrection is to deny the gospel. Do you recognize that if we pull out this little pin of the gospel, that the whole faith will crumble like a house of cards? In fact, if you were to read verse 12 through midpoint of this chapter, Paul articulates, if, the go- if he has not been raised, in the end, we are the biggest fools and liars to boot. Because we're promoting something that's untrue. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, how can some of you say, and he's speaking to the church now, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people. Of all people, we are most to be pitied. All the idiots in the world, line them up, we are the greatest ones. If this is only for this life alone. See, what, what what the resurrection does is it confirms the truth that we are forgiven and justified, that the gospel's true. Paul writes in Romans 4, he says that he was delivered up for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. Our our innocence, our forgiveness, our reconciliation with God, our adoption, all those things are tied up in the resurrection. The, the, The resurrection is God saying, I affirm, I accept, I rejoice, I'm satisfied, Jesus, in everything you've done. It confirms to us that we're saved. I mean, think about that. How much do we want to know that we are forgiven? I mean, when you go back through the database of your life and you think through all the things you did or should have done and and how they are just dogging you to know that the resurrection confirms to us that we are forgiven in Christ. That is because of the resurrection. God placing his stamp approval on not just the work of the Son, but his person that the resurrection confirms that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and it's Jesus. We don't have three to choose from. God only raised one. He only raised one to confirm that Jesus Christ alone saves. Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor in the 19th century, wrote these words about the commitment regarding the resurrection to the person and the work of Christ. He says this, On Christ and what he has done, my soul hangs for time and eternity. 
And if your soul also hangs there, it will be saved as surely as mine shall be. And if you are lost, trust in Christ, I will be lost with you, and I will go to hell with you. I must do so, for I have nothing else to rely upon but the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, was buried, rose again, went to heaven, and still lives and pleads for sinners at the right hand of God. That's the gospel. That is where our hope rests. And the resurrection confirms all this is true. Folks, rejoice with me over the resurrection, confirming to us, we don't need to wonder, did he do enough? But he doesn't really know how bad I am. The resurrection confirms that no, God has accepted his sacrifice for us. But secondly, the resurrection comes with evidence. I'm so thankful for this. This is kind of the elephant in the room. People asking about, did he really get raised? I mean, we've never seen that. How do we know? Well, Paul gives us two pieces of evidence, and you see it in the first, really, verses 5 to 8, but even in verse 4, it says that all of this was according to the Scriptures. The first thing Paul turns to is the Scriptures. Now, remember in verse 12, we know that this Corinthian church is beginning to waver on the nature of the resurrection. And so he says, no, it's according to the Scriptures. God already said he would do this. This is to provide proof for us. This is to provide evidence for us. In other words, if God said it beforehand, then we can rest in it happening. That he said he would be raised. Now, you don't see in the text chapters and verses that you can turn to to prove this. They're there. Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 118. You can go to Hosea 6 or Daniel 12. There are plenty of verses that speak to the resurrection, but I think when Paul says twice, according to the Scriptures, I think he means the whole tenor of Scripture. In other words, when you look at all of Scripture, here's what you see. You see this redemptive plan of God. God creates all things for his glory and for his purposes and for our pleasure. And and then we fall in our rebellion. We rebel against God. We don't want to be a creature. We want to be the creator. And then God begins this recreation project, if you will. And he, he sets in motion by a promise that a Redeemer will come and will save us and it will bring about a recreation of all things. You see this throughout the tenor of Scripture. I think that's what he means. But then Paul moves not just from Scriptures do we see support for the resurrection, we also see the proof of eyewitnesses. And that's why Paul in verses 5 to 8 lists these eyewitnesses. Now listen, we have videographers, we have cameras, we have pictures. But in this culture at this time, an eyewitness would have been the most solid proof of anything. To be able to consider the character of a person, that they're trustworthy, and they've put eyes on it, and they've seen it, and they testify to it, and if you get at least two to see the same thing, boom, open and shut case on that. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's just lining up all those who have seen him. There's Peter, there's the 12, there's 500, there's James, and there's even Paul. They've all seen the same thing. And what's interesting about this is not just that Peter saw him and the twelve, they might be kind of drawn into some sort of, you know, wish fulfillment that Jesus might come back. But 500 at the same time? And what Paul's doing here is, I think he's meeting the objection, oh, they, they're just, they were so desirous of seeing him that they, they just envisioned him. It's kind of like when you lose a loved one after many years of marriage. They sit in the same chair every morning at the same time. Sometimes you look and you wonder, did I just see them? 
But that doesn't happen to 500 people at the same time. If Jesus Christ were to stand next to me right now on this platform, you wouldn't be wondering, am I hallucinating, if we all saw the same thing at the same time. It's to meet that objection that he was actually seen. In fact, Paul says, some of them are still living, go ask him if you don't believe me. So Paul's marshalling all this evidence to show us, no, that it's true. He, there was an empty tomb. We saw his body. We saw him alive. Paul makes the comment that he's the last, probably just to teach us that these sightings are not the normal experience of the Christian. And that kind of brings up part of the problem. Because why don't people believe this? They believe other eyewitnesses when they tell the same thing. When you get all these people saying the same thing, we tend to believe them. Why don't we? I think just then, so now, uh, people struggle because of the implications of what does it really mean? Someone to deny this outright, <clears throat> they, want to, they want to deny it. They want to say, hey, it can't be repeated. I haven't seen it done, therefore I don't believe it. Many people will deny it because it's not repeatable. Now, I would just remind you, if you happen to feel that way, I understand, but I would remind you the nature of a miracle is not repeated, otherwise it wouldn't be a miracle. It would be an ordinary circumstance like other repeatable events in life. In fact, too often I, I see people that will come into a conversation and say, miracles cannot happen. They're impossible. Well, that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy then. If, if that's what you think and that's what you're predisposed to believe, then any time you hear of any unique event, you're going to consider it, well, it just can't happen. Alistair McGrath, a, a British theologian, writes these words. He says, if resurrections happened regularly, there would be nothing different about Jesus being raised from the dead. He would be one among many, just another statistic. But if Jesus' resurrection is unique, then by definition, there will be no more, or there will be no analogous events. That makes it a lot harder to believe, but it makes it a lot more worthwhile believing. So, so there are some who deny, some who disregard the teaching, disregard this eyewitness testimony. Some people want to believe in what we call a swoon theory. This swoon theory is that Jesus Christ didn't really die. He just kind of lost consciousness. And this was developed in the early uh, 19th century. And, and they thought he died, so they put him in the tomb. The cool air kind of helped him. He resuscitated, and then he left the tomb, and, and he wandered off, as many writers have said, to India, to the east, where he lived in obscurity. Now, if you believe that, I want to first commend you for having great faith. And I mean that in all seriousness. People believe it. Because if you think that these professional Roman executioners who do this a thousand times a year, there was one year that was recorded 10,000 crucifixions. They knew how to kill a man. And if they were duped, thinking he died and he didn't die, and then resuscitated in the tomb and able to roll back a stone that two or three men had to roll forward, and then unarmed beat an armed squad of Roman soldiers who are trained to kill, if, and then just walk off into the sunset and live in India, then that takes faith. It really does. We are all people of faith. But there's another theory, the stolen body theory, where no, they took the body, that the disciples took the body to create the impression and to fulfill his words that, in fact, he was raised. Now, I guess that's what the Jewish leaders developed. I have trouble believing it only because why would they do it? There was no profit motive in it. There was nothing. The only suffering came to them because of it. I have trouble believing that. 
Others, and this is generally the tenor of those within the church and even outside the churches, we tend to spiritualize his resurrection. We tend to make it kind of a meta-narrative of life. In other words, the resurrection is like my life. I, I want to start over again. I want, I want to start new. I want to be a new creation. And so we take the resurrection and we make it a metaphor, or we make it kind of a spiritualizing of the act. Bishop Spong, many of you know the name. He's a retired Episcopal minister now. But he wrote these words. He was, a, he was a bishop in the Episcopal Church. He says, I do not believe that the deceased body of Jesus was resuscitated physically on the third day and was restored to life of this world, as at least the later Gospels assert. So he at least admits that the Gospels do assert that. He doesn't believe it. He says, but I do believe that in him and through him, people found a way into that which is eternal so that they portrayed him as breaking through and transcending the limits of death. This is a spiritualizing of a historical event. And I would just remind you that it's difficult to have a legitimate experience of life from an illegitimate event. So so what do you do with this? If you're here today, you're not a Christian. I know many times you think, well, the burden of proof rests upon the church to prove that he was raised. But I would ask you, doesn't the burden of proof kind of shift to you? I mean, how do you explain the church? How do you explain its size and its start? I mean, if Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, buried in Jerusalem, rose in Jerusalem, and the first church was planted in Jerusalem, if he didn't die, it never would have started. Or or how do you explain a, a people adopting a set of beliefs immediately that were very contrary and counterintuitive to what they had ever known? How would they just come to see this Jesus as they did? And, and how would you explain all these men and women suffering for a testimony if it was false? They gave, it with their, they gave their lives for the testimony. I've reminded you before, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, I tend to trust the witnesses that have their throats cut. In other words, if you're going to die for a testimony, I tend to trust those. They tend to tell you the truth when they're willing to die for it. So if you're not a Christian, but you're investigating, you're thinking about it, I would just caution you against chronological snobbery, this idea that time kind of makes us smarter than them. We may be, you know, technologically or scientifically more advanced, but, but that doesn't make us smarter. It doesn't make us wiser. I want to remind you that they would have had trouble believing this just the same as you. In fact, probably more so, because they didn't have the history of this thought prior to their lives. So that's what we're left with. We're left with this resurrection first, confirms the truth of the gospel. The resurrection is evidence, but then thirdly, and very importantly, the resurrection inaugurates a new age. Now this is where I want you to maybe, maybe trot a little more with me, because this is going to be a little bit more perhaps different than you've heard before. But the resurrection is initiating a new age in which we currently live now. And I'm saying that because of verses 9, 10, and 11, where Paul begins to explain his own testimony. Notice you hear the sorrow in his words in verse 9 when he says, For I am least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's referring back to that time where he was He was marking Christians out for imprisonment and murder. In fact, I think he's referring to his Damascus Road experience. He's going to Damascus. He has letters from the religious authorities to imprison and kill Christians. And so he's going up there to do this this dark deed. And what happens? 
Jesus Christ reveals himself, knocks him to the ground, blinds him. Only later would he regain his sight, repent of his sins, and begin to now preach the gospel that he sought to undermine. Who would do this, Paul's saying? I mean, the, Christ should have destroyed him, and yet Christ delivers him. How do you figure that? Total, pure grace. Paul knows it. Paul's overwhelmed. That's why he says, I'm one abnormally born. That's a difficult word to translate. Could be untimely. It could be, and it was a word used uh, for wreckage, even miscarriage. He's saying, that's what my life was like. But now, look. Look at what his grace has done for me. His grace is not without effect. In other words, the grace that has come into the world through the reigning of the Son who has been resurrected, now begins to transform people and change people. We live in a new age where the Spirit now is applying the truth of the gospel to change people, bringing them both from dark to light, but also from glory to glory. Our change is not always immediate. It may be incremental, but it's real none the same. It's, it's change that has come. That's why Paul says his grace is not without effect. So for us, we look at the resurrection. It confirms the hope of the gospel. It anchors the gospel, if you will. We look at the resurrection. The resurrection has evidence. Listen, you can be rational and believe the gospel. The Christian is not rationalistic. Being rationalistic means that I try to look at life without God. I'm just going to look at it based upon reason. We're not rationalists, but we are rational because there's evidence here that would convince people there's legitimate eyewitness evidence. But also the resurrection inaugurates a new age. It's a new age that you and I live in. Jesus being raised is the first fruits of a new age. What God did by raising Jesus in a body is he's confirming to us he's not done with creation. Many of us err in one of two ways. Most of us err in this, you know what, why bother with this world? God's done with it. He's going to burn it. He's going to destroy it. He's going to discard the whole thing, and we're going to move on with something new. No. No, no, no. No, this resurrection of his body, even raising Jesus in a body, right now Jesus reigns at the right hand of God in flesh like us. Go think about that for a while. He's in flesh like us at the throne of God. He is not finished with this world. Our, our finitude, Our limitedness is not the problem that's to be created. It's our fallenness. That's what he came to do, to to redeem us, that we will live like we are now, but glorified. It's a new age. He's a picture of the new age. But not just has he inaugurated a new age, that this world matters, creation matters, life matters, what you do matters. In fact, All of your life matters. And we saw this back in Matthew 25 with the cup of cold water that won't be forgotten. We think about the the woman who broke the alabaster jar of perfume. She's not going to be forgotten. In other words, because we're in a new age that will never end, our works now matter. Uh, The works that we do, like we have Serve Raleigh in in April 4 to 9. These works matter to God. Us tutoring refugees, us praying for refugees, us fixing the, or helping fix the school down the road, us working with crisis pregnancy centers, it matters to us. We want to be involved because we're reflecting to the world that we're members now of a new kingdom living in a new age, even though we're presently 
in this fallen world. That's why Paul says at the very end of this chapter, he says, be steadfast, brothers and sisters, and sisters, be immovable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is what? It's never in vain. It's not in vain. It matter, nothing will be wasted. All the things you do will be seen and appreciated and even commended by God. But not just does the new age remind us that God's not finished with creation. The new age reminds us that our works will... But the new age also proves to us that we can be changed. Listen, many of us are struggling in sin. But this new age confirms to us that the power given to us by the Spirit will change us incrementally. That the sins that dog us, we're going to just seek God's Spirit because of this new age, that we will overcome. You ought to be able to look at your life and see it. If you're married, your marriage ought to be different over the past five years. Your personal lives and personal struggles, they should be different. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and notice how it's tied into the resurrection. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, by faith, appealing to God for grace through his spirit that we're being changed from glory to glory. This is the hope of the new age. This is what we ought to experience. What we can ask for, accessing the grace of God given to us by his spirit. And then last I'd say too that the new age reminds us that we don't need to fear death. When you look at Jesus in the pictures of the Gospels when he comes back to life, what do you see? You see a man in flesh. You see him eat. You see him speak. You see him recognize and be recognized. Do you see all these things? He also walks through walls. He also doesn't get sick. He also doesn't have sorrow. He is probably the greatest glimpse of what heaven will be like for us. That we will be known. We will know one another. That, that we'll be like we are, but fully redeemed. This idea of you sprouting wings and all of a sudden developing an ability to play the harp on some cloud in some universe, it's just not there. It just isn't there. I don't know how it bled into Western Christian culture. It's not there. What we have is what we see, but glorified. And Jesus in the flesh right now is a picture of that. We don't need to fear death. The deterioration of this body is only to put on a new body, but one like ours, just like his was. He's the first fruits of all that follows. So there's so much more in this resurrection than just simply if we get cancer next week that we don't have to fear. No, 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 there's much more now, right now. The resurrection gives hope that our gospel is true. You can preach it with boldness. You can share it. You have a mandate to preach it because it's so true. But the resurrection comes with evidence. Don't be bashful about the resurrection. Listen, this evidence has converted people. People have gone to try to undermine the gospel and in looking at the evidence of the resurrection have been converted by it. But also this resurrection has inaugurated a new age, a new age that you and I now live in. Let me remind you, today is a sweet day. I broke out the purple tie, and we dress up for it. It's, it's a special day, but every day is the new age. So tomorrow, guess what? 
you're still living in a new age. It's going to be the same thing. Tuesday, Wednesday, if you get sick on Friday, he's still in the flesh at the right hand of God reigning. The resurrection will be celebrated next Sunday at this church. We'll still be thankful for it. We're still conditioned by it. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I would just ask you to consider these things. You probably don't hear them very often. Even if you have trouble believing this, even if you have trouble believing, I would like to be able to ask you, don't you want to believe, though? I mean, don't you want to believe that one has come to deliver us, to save us, to bring forgiveness and reconciliation, that we might be with God forever on this earth in glory? Remember now, the new heavens come down to earth. We don't go up to heaven. Ultimately, the new heavens come down. This is where we'll be. When you love to believe it being true. Well, let's take a minute now and just ask God for greater clarity on this. Ask God for greater unction in living in light of this resurrection. Let's be thankful the gospel's been confirmed. Let's be thankful that he's given us evidence. Let's be thankful that we are now part of a new age. And then an elder will close us in prayer.